to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Welcome back to our recent developments in business and corporate litigation podcast series. My name is Jessica Mendelson, and I'm an associate at Paul Hastings in Palo Alto, California, where I practice employment law with a focus on employee mobility and trade secrets. I'm the co-editor of the ABA's Recent Developments in Business and Corporate Litigation 2020 book and the co-chair of publications for the Business and Corporate Litigation section. My co-host today is Emily Stover. Hi, everyone. My name is Emily Stover, and I'm also an associate at Paul Hastings in Palo Alto, California, where I also practice employment law. I'm the vice chair of publications for business and corporate litigation section. Thanks, Emily. Uh, Today we have two fantastic speakers joining us to discuss some recent developments in employment law. Our first speaker is Jeff Wall, the chair and a partner in in Paul Hastings San Francisco employment law practice. Jeff has been recognized as as a leading employment lawyer by both Chambers and Legal 500 and represents major national and regional companies in both employment litigation and counseling. Welcome, Jeff. Good morning. Uh, our next speaker is Emily Padot, a partner in Paul Hastings' New York office. Emily specializes in defending employers in a broad array of employment matters, including claims of discrimination, harassment, retaliation, whistleblower matters, executive compensation disputes, and wage and hour class and collective actions. Emily, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Jeff and Emily, we really appreciate you joining us today. To start us off, we realized that employment law is a pretty broad area and that we could fill an entire podcast series on employment law alone. What do you see as some of the recent key topics that business and corporate litigators should be aware of? So starting off, um, I think we could, in broad strokes, identify at least um, four uh, pretty important uh, topics in employment law that have emerged um, both in terms of court developments and in more generally, uh, ter- more general terms of popular media. And that would include uh, the Me Too movement, uh, which has uh, burst on the scene in so many uh, highly publicized ways. Um, and then very, very recently, the Supreme Court of the United States decision in the Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia case, addressing sex, uh, sexual orientation and gender identity as aspects of sex discrimination or Title VII. Um, Arbitration continues to be a very important topic with um, some continuing pushback by states who are trying to take employment claims out of the arbitration realm. And then, of course, uh, recent developments due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, There's a host of employment law issues relating to that. Thanks, Jeff. Let's start with the first topic, one of the hottest that we've seen in the last few years, Me Too. So we know that it's impacted both the media and employment litigation, but what are the biggest ways you've actually seen this movement impact clients and employers? Thanks, Emily. You're exactly right that the Me Too movement has been a really hot topic since late 2018. And I think it's had a huge impact on not only how these cases are litigated, but also how employers handle complaints of discrimination and harassment that come up in the workplace. So first, there's the issue of non-disclosure. 
So the Me Too movement, you may recall, really started when some of these issues came to light through the media. Some really awful stories were being reported of victims having come forward with complaints of harassment. And they were met with either having them brushed under the rug or with payoffs, with strict non-disclosure provisions, which in some instances serve to protect harassers and allow them to continue their abuse. So you think, of course, the classic example of Harvey Weinstein. So after these stories came out, some states started passing legislation to address these issues, to prevent that from happening. And so we saw some laws being passed in states like New York, where I live and work, that, for example, prohibit mandatory confidential arbitration of harassment claims. And there's also a law here that prohibits NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, that prevent a complainant from disclosing the facts and circumstances underlying a claim of discrimination, unless it's the complainant's preference. So here in New York, you've got to establish that preference with really strict procedural requirements. It's got to be memorialized in an agreement that the complainant has 21 days to consider and seven days to revoke. So as a practical matter, I think the Me Too movement has really had a big impact on how harassment and discrimination claims are settled. So as a result, we see more of them being litigated. And the second point on this is really that employers have had to take a good, hard look at their internal complaint procedures. Are they adequately responding to complaints of harassment in the workplace? There's also been some new laws passed in the wake of Me Too on this front as well. So again, I'll take New York as an example. Here, the laws have been expanded to include broad requirements on anti-harassment training and anti-harassment policies, and employers are now required to have a policy that lays out the steps that they take in response to a harassment complaint. So, for example, their policy might say that the investigator will review documents, interview witnesses, prepare a timeline, uh, review prior incidents that might be relevant, and keep a log of everything that they review. All of that is in their policy against harassment. So even in states that don't have this requirement of a detailed policy, I think employers are well advised to re-examine and fortify their investigations processes, train their investigators, and keep really thorough records. It's because when these cases are ultimately litigated, the investigations process is what comes under scrutiny. You know, the question always arises in situations where there's a dispute over the investigator's conclusions. So the investigator finds there's no harassment and the complainant sues anyway. So in litigation, the employer is essentially defending itself by asserting that its investigation was reasonable, it wasn't biased. And that's why it's so critical for employers to have good and defensible investigation procedures in the first place. And I think we're going to see more scrutiny of those processes by judges and arbitrators in the coming years. Thanks, Emily. Jeff, do you have anything to add? Um, yes, um, adding on to what Emily said, um, sexual harassment um, and other aspects of um, sex discrimination have has been, of course, a very important topic for many years. Um, back in the day with Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill, um, that definitely put it on everyone's um, radar. Uh, even though the courts had been developing theories of sex harassment under Title VII, and then uh, states also had enacted their own laws. Um, and what we've seen uh, to be the most crucial thing that employers can do with regard to sexual harassment, um, I'd say is really uh, at least twofold, maybe even threefold. Uh, one is uh, training. 
Um, states like California have affirmative obligations on, imposed on employers to train, train supervisors, more recently train um, rank and file employees about sexual harassment um, and making sure that they've got um, a, a good um, uh, a process internally um, to uh, receive sexual harassment complaints uh, and to make sure they're appropriately investigated and that appropriate action is taken. Um, so I think that's very important. Uh, and then number two, uh, making sure that um, uh, things are really nipped in the bud. Our experience is that oftentimes uh, incidents of harassment are a result of escalating um, situations, uh, almost as though the aggressors try to test the water, seeing how far he or she can go. And I usually say he or she because it can be a male or female offender. Um, and so a um, smart and responsive human resources uh, staff will uh, keep a close watch on the workforce, uh, listen and pay attention to uh, reports or even their own personal observations of people crossing a line, um, uh, saying something that's not up to company standards. Remember that even if the legal definition of sexual harassment requires severe or pervasive uh, behavior, um, the company is free and really should enforce a standard professional conduct that requires uh, even more stringent adherence to professional standards and not to uh, tolerate things that even if they're not actionable as harassment are still inappropriate because again, things can build it off each other and then take appropriate action to, um, to address it and hopefully to stop it. Um, I think uh, in tough situations, the doubt should probably be resolved in favor of the person complaining about harassment. That's not to say that every victim should necessarily be believed. They all should be heard, but not necessarily believed. You have to make a fact determination in every case. But if it's a doubtful situation, um, you certainly want to resolve things as best you can to make sure there is no repetition or future incident of the behavior. And so whether that means uh, some sort of uh, admonition or counseling and coaching or training um, or uh, actual discipline, including uh, suspension, final warning, actual termination even, those are all things that the employer has to consider. Uh, because in these cases, as they're litigated, um, the juries and the courts are looking not only to see uh, what was the uh, offending behavior that's been alleged, but what was the employer's response to it. And a robust response that shows that the employer took the complaint very seriously and took appropriate action uh, will uh, immeasurably strengthen the employer's defense, even in uh, tougher uh, cases where some ugly facts that are alleged. Thank you both. Uh, that's a great overview and I think provides you know the key key takeaway for employers is that those investigation procedures are ones that really will be under scrutiny and and really do need to be analyzed in light of these new changes in the law but this brings us to a somewhat related topic and that's one that you you previewed for us jeff and that i'll ask you emily to speak more on um, and that's the supreme court decision in bostock v clayton county can you tell us a little more about this case and its impact Sure, absolutely. So the Bostock case is, of course, a long anticipated decision that's finally brought Title VII in line with, I think it's 23 other states that have recognized sexual orientation and gender identity as protected categories under their discrimination laws. Um, in Justice Gorsuch's majority opinion, the court found it's impossible for an employer to discriminate against an employee on account of sexual orientation or gender identity without taking into account their sex. 
So one interesting outcome of this case is that it's dealt a blow to the age-old defense that is trotted out from time to time of the equal opportunity harasser. So that defense is essentially that if someone harasses or discriminates against both men and women, then the conduct can't be based on sex. But the majority opinion in this case said that Title VII's protections extend to individuals. So it's not a defense if an employer discriminates equally against both men and women who happen to be attracted to members of the same sex, for example, because the individual affected employees are still being discriminated against based on sex. Now, I think the examples Justice Gorsuch used in the majority opinion were Hannah and Bob. So he wrote that if an employer fires Hannah for being insufficiently feminine and Bob for being insufficiently masculine, that isn't a defense. It only doubles the discrimination based on sex. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how this concept plays out with respect to the other line of reasoning, which is that Title VII isn't a general civility code. It doesn't protect against generalized abusive conduct, only conduct that's based on a protected category. So in the case of Hannah and Bob, I think there's a clear link showing that they were singled out because of their sex. But I imagine there will still be distinctions drawn between generalized bad behavior and bad behavior based on sex and other protected characteristics. But, you know, one thing is clear as a result of this decision, gone is the blanket defense that two wrongs make a right. And I think another thing I just want to add related to this uh, opinion is that, you know, some have said, while this is a really big step in the right direction, the court's decision may not go far enough because it doesn't specifically address the issue of non-binary individuals, people who do not identify as male or female. Now, the Bostock opinion, of course, analyze gender discriminate gender identity discrimination in the context of the definition of sex which is binary and that's the language of title 7 that was being interpreted so with this potential uncertainty of how that might translate to non-binary individuals some are still calling for Congress to pass the Equality Act or other similar proposed legislation that would go farther to protect people of all genders Jeff do you have anything to add to that Sure. Um, uh, as Emily mentioned, uh, Justice Gorsuch um, authored the majority opinion with uh, Chief Justice Roberts joining. That made the um, six of three majority. And that uh, surprised a lot of folks who just assumed that a um, Trump appointee to the court who was um, viewed as a uh, fairly uh, hard right conservative uh, would surely have not come out this way on, a, on an issue which is viewed by a lot of people as very much a cultural or social issue. Um, but he took a very strict textualist approach and said that um, the, the law says sex discrimination doesn't really matter whether Congress at the time of an act of the law in 64 uh, had sexual orientation discrimination in mind. In fact, there was a pretty good uh, body of evidence showing that not only they didn't have this in mind, but that at the time uh, homosexuality was viewed as um, a mental disorder or uh, criminal conduct. Uh, views that have obviously been um, overridden by uh, more uh, enlightened thinking these days. Um, but uh, he said that it doesn't matter. All that really matters is what words did Congress use. And uh, given that they used the word sex discrimination, that is discrimination based on sex, um, then you simply look to see is the alleged discrimination when someone is fired because he's gay or because he's transgender, um, does that um, uh, mean it's discrimination based on sex? And he said that it was. Um, and so um, 
that was um, a surprising outcome for many people. It also is important to note that before uh, very recent Court of Appeals decisions that led to this uh, Supreme Court decision, uh, the federal courts were really uniform in saying that Title VII did not go so far as to prohibit um, uh, sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination. So this is definitely a sea change. And as Emily said, in 27 states, which currently don't have any state protections um, against um, uh, gay discrimination, this really marks a complete change in the law. Um, the equal employment harasser defense that Emily mentioned was never really a very attractive defense to begin with because you basically are having to tell the jury that your defendant is boorish or uncivil or mean or cruel, but because he, he's allows to everybody, that means you can't do anything about it. Um, and so this obviously, as Emily says, makes it uh, much more difficult, if not possible, defense to maintain. Um, I should also note that although Title VII itself certainly does not prohibit discrimination based on being a bully or, or otherwise impose a civility code, there has been some movement um, at some state levels um, to actually create a cause of action against uh, bullies in the workplace. Um, I don't know right now how far that's going to go. In California, there is no cause of action for that, but actually uh, training about bullying behavior and why it's unacceptable is now part of the mandatory sexual harassment training that we mentioned before. Um, but uh, I think um, we all have to recognize that jurors are certainly people uh, who are looking to do justice in a case, and even judges uh, are certainly people as well trying to do justice in the case. And so if you have a bad actor, um, they surely will be looking for some way to tag that person with liability if the person did do harm. And as Emily says, this case makes it um, very difficult to try to defend such conduct with an equal employment harasser um, uh, argument. Um, if I can just say one more thing before we move on to arbitration, which I know is our next topic, uh, I, I don't want us to be, uh, not to be mindful of, of course, the other big social movement that's going on right now, which is Black Lives Matter. Um, and um, although it's not, strictly speaking, an employment law issue, uh, it really has to do more with um, systemic racism in governmental institutions and police uh, misconduct, um, I don't think we should be blind to the fact that um, it certainly will heighten consciousness about uh, how black and other minority employees are treated in the workplace. And although it doesn't mark any change in the law, uh, the law in that area is pretty well developed. It includes theories of intentional discrimination or disparate treatment or uh, discrimination ba based on policy or practice, which is disparate impact. I think it's fair to say that as part of the general raising of consciousness of um, race discrimination issues, um, you certainly may see more pushback in the workplace for employees who feel that they're not being treated fairly based on race. And therefore, although I don't want to commit myself to a firm prediction, I'll simply say I wouldn't be surprised if we see an uptick in race discrimination claims at the EOC and state agencies and the courts. I think that would be a natural outcome of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement that's going on right now. Thanks so much, Jeff. Uh, you mentioned uh, that mass arbitration has also become an issue in recent years. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing there? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> just to put things in context, um, arbitration, of course, is an alternative dispute resolution mechanism where the parties have agreed that instead of uh, having their disputes tried in court, they'll go to a uh, mediate, excuse me, an arbitrator uh, who could be a retired judge or could be a lawyer in private practice who takes on an arbitration or even a professional arbitrator. Um, and the um, process has a lot of similarities to a court proceeding 
except it's generally private, generally far less formal than a court proceeding, and most importantly, you generally uh, don't have a right to appeal or court review of what the arbitrator did. There's a few exceptions, but generally not the case. Um, For years, of course, arbitration has been an option, uh, and employers were generally, uh, in my experience, kind of mixed feelings about arbitration, because on the one hand, they liked the idea of not having to incur the much larger expense of a full-blown jury uh, trial uh, uh, and all of, uh, full-fledged discovery and so forth. Um, and they also had a sense that arbitrators would be less likely to be influenced by emotional appeals and more likely to decide cases more objectively. Uh, on the other hand, <clears throat> they had some reservations about arbitration because um, there was a sense that the arbitrator tends to split the baby, uh, less willing to entertain <clears throat> dispositive motions such as a demur or motion to dismiss, or a summary judgment motion, instead of letting everything go to full-blown hearing, um, and therefore uh, defenses um, that might be uh, appropriate, um, uh, such as statute of limitations or failure to state a cause of action, the arbitrator might, might be, and I do say might because oftentimes they will do the right thing, but might be less willing to entertain those. Um, so as I say, there was uh, mixed feelings about this, and it wasn't universally being adopted by employers. The game changer then was the Supreme Court decision, AT&T Mobility versus Concepcion, which said that if you build into your arbitration agreement a class action waiver, a provision that says that the plaintiff can only pursue his or her claim on an individual basis and cannot represent others, bring a class action or representative action, um, that uh, made a huge difference for employers who were um, barraged with wage and hour class actions or EEO class actions. Um, and we're desperate to avoid uh, that type of massive litigation. And so we saw a significant uptick in uh, adoption of arbitration agreements with class action waivers. And under uh, Concepcion, uh, the lower courts were consistently enforcing those agreements. So um, ever resourceful plans counsel and legislators who were sympathetic to their cause thought about ways of still avoiding this. And so one example is in California, a statute called the Labor Code Private Attorneys General Act, or PAGA, which basically deputizes private litigants to sue for civil penalties for labor code violations. Um, That can be brought in what's called a representative action. It's a little misleading of a term. It means representing the state of California in recovering civil penalties that previously only the state could recover. Um, the courts have uh, held that a PAGA representative action is not subject to an arbitration agreement with a class action waiver. And therefore, you, even if your class action claim for labor code violations is subject to arbitration on a single plaintiff basis, your PAGA claim can proceed in court as an action where you're litigating not only labor code violations committed against the plaintiff, but also against all other aggrieved employees. That's been a big exception to the class action waiver rule. And although California right now is unique in having a PAGA statute, we have seen movements in other states across the country, not very many to be sure, and I think exclusively blue states, but other states have entertained coming up with some state cause of action that could be brought with regard to many other employees that would not be subject to um, uh, the class action waiver. Um, a second new front that's opened up is what Jessica was just mentioning, which is mass arbitration. So what does that mean? That means that where the arbitration agreement has a class action waiver provision and therefore a single plaintiff can't sue on behalf of a class, a resourceful plaintiff's counsel uh, 
by hook or by crook, including sometimes getting information from the employer itself and discovering in a underlying case, will reach out to the employees, both current and former, and say, um, we'd like to pursue claims in your behalf, so would you like us to represent you in an arbitration? And they assemble uh, literally a mass number of claimants in arbitration and then commence a mass number of arbitrations. So, for example, if you had a uh, class of 3,000 people um, and the plaintiff can't sue on behalf of that class because the class action waiver, the plaintiff's counsel gathers up hundreds, maybe even a 1,000 or so employees and file uh, arbitration demands on behalf of each and every one of those individuals. Um, that's called a mass arbitration, mass arbitrations. Um, the California rule in arbitration, it's a case, found in a case called Armendaris, um, says that uh, as part of a, a valid agreement to compel arbitration of employment law claims, the employer must agree as part of the agreement to pay for the cost of arbitration, which doesn't mean attorney's fees, but does mean the arbitrator's fees, which can be quite expensive, uh, for the arbitration, less only whatever court filing fee the plaintiff would have had to have paid if the plaintiff had filed suit, and that's usually just a few hundred bucks. In any one case, this can be a relatively expensive proposition, and some employers have been put off by that, but most are willing to pay that expense. But multiply that by hundreds or thousands, and now you've got a serious uh, expense issue on your hands. Um, a real-world example of this uh, are gig economy companies like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash, who have successfully prevented their drivers or couriers from suing over uh, alleged misclassification issues uh, in a class case because of class action waivers who then have faced uh, these mass arbitrations. Um, uh, and uh, Lyft and DoorDash in particular have made news over this um, and they have uh, tried to um, uh, uh, avoid this by saying that, that uh, look, this wasn't the intention to have to arbitrate all these cases at one time, so there should be some process in place to manage these. Uh, starting maybe with a test case first and then going on with the rest, and that way you'd have to pay all those fees. Um, and so far, uh, they haven't gotten real traction with that argument in court. Uh, most recently, uh, a couple of federal judges have told the companies that they are they agreed to arbitrate these claims. There is no carve-out for mass arbitrations, and therefore they have to go ahead and arbitrate this mass of claims. As you can imagine, faced with a mass number of claims, a lot of employers are looking for settlements on a group-wide basis to avoid that expense, which can create a distortion in the system if really you think you've got a valid defense and should be able to go to a hearing on each of your defenses in, in each of these cases. So one idea that we've talked about with clients is to build into your arbitration agreement a provision that if there is a defined uh, number of arbitrations that could comprise a mass arbitration movement, um, then the arbitration tribunal is empowered to put everything on hold until the parties agree on a number of test cases, could be five, could be 10. Those cases would proceed with the employer picking up the fees. Those cases get arbitrated, and then you go from there. The idea clearly being that after the parties have arbitrated a few of these cases, they'll probably look more seriously about resolving the rest on a settlement basis, but not precluding the possibility of future arbitrations because you, you can't contract around the right of someone uh, everyone really to have their their day in arbitration, if you will. 
Um, so we'll see if, if this idea gets traction. Uh, it isn't necessarily the right answer for everybody, but it is a, a practical response to the mass arbitration movements that we're saying. Um, one other comment I'll make, which is that the Supreme Court's uh, ruling in Concepcion is based on a statute, the Federal uh, Arbitration Act or FAA. Um, it's not a constitutional provision, it's just the statute. And any statute, including FAA, is, of course, subject to revision or repeal uh, if uh, a different Congress or different president is in office. And so if the Democrats were to take control of both houses of Congress and if uh, President Joe Biden took the oath of office in January rather than a re-election of Donald Trump, um, then I would think you could see a serious movement among Democrats, uh, which Biden, I think, would probably support of some type of either repeal or amendment of the FAA with regard to the Concepcion issue um, to restore the right to proceed with a class action in court. Uh, there would be a lot of lobbying by business interests. It's not clear that all Democrats would go along, so I'm not predicting that will be the outcome, but I will predict that if you see Democrat control of the government, you probably will see some kind of movement to curtail Concepcion and other uh, anti-class action uh, cases in the arbitration context. Great. Thanks so much for that overview, Jeff. Uh, Emily, anything you'd like to add? No, I think Jeff had a really great overview. I think that one one minor thing that I would add is that I, you know, I completely echo that a lot of employers have mixed feelings about arbitration programs for many of the reasons that Jeff noted. And I think one of the biggest challenges in arbitration is that there's really almost no ability to appeal an arbitration decision. You know, the grounds are so narrow for vacating a final and binding award that, you know, I think that some employers are, are beginning to sour on these arbitration programs. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that New York had passed a law uh, in response to Me Too that invalidated any agreement that required confidential binding arbitration of harassment claims. Now, of course, New York's law is preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act, so it doesn't apply to many arbitration programs of employers that have national and, and global presence. But nonetheless, I have seen some employers either opting to do away with their arbitration program altogether, or in some instances, just not enforce the arbitration provision when it comes to certain claims. Thanks, Emily. That's actually been our experience out on this coast as well. So it'll be interesting to see how employers treat arbitration provisions going forward in the next few years. But we'll shift gears to our last topic, which I'm sure everyone has heard plenty about. You can't have an interview in 2020 without talking about COVID-19 and of course the way that's impacted our workforce. So Emily, what are the big employment issues you've seen stemming from COVID-19 and as we begin transitioning back to the workforce, how should employers prepare? Absolutely. I mean, there are just a bunch of issues that come into play as employees are beginning to return to work, um, including, you know, EEO issues, first with respect to testing and other medical inquiries. What can you ask and what can't you ask? And also, who's coming back to work? You know, there are a number of traps here for the unwary employer. Some employers who might think that they're doing the right thing by treating, for example, older workers differently because they're at a higher risk of serious complications from the disease. But of course, differential treatment may run afoul of the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. 
And also, you know, I'll just note that there's undoubtedly going to be requests for leave and accommodations, which in some cases will require engagement in the interactive process under either the Americans with Disabilities Act or similar state laws. And there's been a host of new laws that were passed since March of this year regarding paid leave uh, related to COVID. But I think one of the biggest issues that employers should be mindful of is one that's often an afterthought, and that's wage and hour law. Now, with respect to non-exempt employees, there may be a number of new activities that employees are required to do either before or after work. Are you taking people's temperatures and do they have to wait in line to do that? What about the elevators? You know, some buildings, including the one that I'm expecting to go back to at some point, allow only four people per elevator car. So are people queuing up for elevator rides to work after having their temperature taken in the lobby of the building? Now, of course, under the continuous workday rule, time spent performing tasks after the first compensable task of the day may be deemed compensable. So employers should really take a close look and consider what tasks are compensable and not compensable and make sure that the employees are recording and being paid for the time that they're working. And with respect to exempt employees, I think it's prudent for employers to take a fresh look on at whether they're still properly classified. Have the primary duties of these employees changed? Has their compensation changed? We've had lots and lots of employers cutting pay for, for many of their employees, so that should be considered. And also, you know, for example, if only 25% or 50% of the workforce is reporting to work at any given time due to social distancing requirements, are your managers still supervising the same number of people? And, you know, consider a retail environment where managers may be actually hopping on the register more frequently to meet customer demand. Have their primary duties changed? So there's a lot of issues on the wage and hour front to really be considering. And the final issue on the return to work front that I'll mention is what to do when employees raise concerns about safety in the workplace. I think that there's definitely a, a growing fear among employers that, gosh, everybody's going to be an OSHA, whistle, OSHA whistleblower as a result of this. And I would say that along the same lines of what employers did in response to Me Too, what I talked about a little bit earlier about really taking a hard look at their investigation processes, I think the same uh, project needs to be undertaken with respect to complaints of safety. So employers should really have a robust process for channeling any concerns about safety that are raised to the right people who will investigate them and respond accordingly. And managers, of course, need to be trained not to retaliate against whistleblowers. Uh, you know, we're already seeing complaints hitting the dockets. Plaintiffs are pleading causes of action under lots of different theories, including under public nuisance laws and negligence theories. And I think Jeff may have a word or two on what, what else we're seeing in that regard. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, so um, if an employee uh, becomes ill, that uh, is, becomes infected with the virus in the workplace, then uh, depending on the particular state where this happens and the um, particular exceptions that could apply, um, notwithstanding that as a general matter, um, the claim for compensation for the injury, the sickness, should be covered by workers' compensation, and therefore it should be outside of the civil court system. Instead, it gets uh, adjudicated through the workers' comp system. Um, that, of course, would not apply to a claim that uh, if someone was 
fired for speaking out about unsafe conditions, for reporting unsafe conditions to the government. Uh, then again, depending on the particular state law, there certainly could be a cause of action for damages and a retaliation theory, as Emily mentioned. We've already also seen uh, litigation on a class action basis or a, a private attorney general basis in uh, connection with whether companies are adopting adequate safety measures in the workplace under uh, both common law and statutory theories. Uh, we've already seen a case against a um, discount a retailer. Uh, we've seen a case against uh, Amazon, and we've seen a um, administrative complaint, which will surely lead to litigation against uh, McDonald's. Um, the uh, theories so far have been as follows. One is a public nuisance theory, uh, that the employers, by not taking appropriate measures, and that could include everything from, as Emily was saying, taking temperatures or doing kind of due diligence inquiry about whether the employee has been sick or has been exposed to anybody with the virus, um, to having adequate protective equipment in the workplace, or uh, not respecting appropriate social distancing, <clears throat> that that type of course of conduct can create a public nuisance that is a, a public setting effectively because employees coming and going therefore can affect the greater community, um, which is addressable as a common law claim, um, or uh, could be viewed as a type of, un, at least in California, where we have a statute prohibiting such things, an unfair business practice or unfair competition uh, law uh, violation. Um, and uh, both of those theories uh, the object would be uh, not damages, but seeking, at least likely not damages, but seeking um, injunctive relief. <clears throat> so ordering the employer to adopt more stringent um, safety measures. And of course, a claim for attorney's fees by the prosecuting attorneys. That's always a pretty material consideration when attorneys decide to take on these cases. Um, and then in California, as I mentioned before, we have PAGA. Uh, and uh, health and safety uh, provisions are in the state labor code violation of which can give rise to a pocket violation. And uh, after notice is given to the government, uh, the uh, employee who filed the notice could proceed with a lawsuit. We haven't, I don't think, yet seen an actual pocket case being filed, but we know the pocket notice went out against McDonald's, and so I suspect we will see a lawsuit in that uh, area soon. Um, we don't know how broad this will be. It could be one of those phenomenons where there's a few test cases first, and the plastic bar, see how, see how that goes, and then maybe it goes beyond that. Um, I think it's uh, obvious, uh, but I will state it anyway, that uh, any responsible employer, uh, both uh, and most importantly for the safety of the workforce, the safety of the customers, the safety of the community at large, obviously wants to be tracking very closely um, the most current uh, guidance from uh, governmental agencies, such as the CDC at the federal level, and state equivalents and so forth to make sure that they are in, in instituting uh, rigorous safety measures in the workplace to uh, show that they are doing their very best to prevent the uh, spread of the virus and that they're abiding by government ground rules. Um, I think if they can do that, uh, it will be a much tougher case for the plaintiff's bar to uh, make uh, where they can't show that there actually was a falling down or a deviation from the governmental standards. And then number two, um, <clears throat> under PAGA, there can be, depending on which labor code section is being invoked, there is the opportunity to cure before a lawsuit can be brought. Uh, and certainly, whether it's a PAGA case or uh, these other types of cases, uh, once the employer gets notice, uh, 
of a complaint or claim being made, it would be, I think, very prudent for the employer to investigate the, the allegations. And if it needs to improve its safety measures, uh, it should do so. Again, uh, the most important interest here is safeguarding the workplace for employees, uh, customers, and the larger community. So that's obviously the most important thing to do this. But also it's important in terms of a prudent defense strategy that if there is a problem, own up to it and fix it. Don't let it fester. Don't let it continue. It will be a much more difficult case if the plaintiffs can show that the employer was put on notice of the deficiencies and yet carried on with business as usual. Now, obviously, there can always be grounds for disputes. So it might be the plaintiff's uh, side still disputes the accuracy of what the employer did. But I think to demonstrate a record of um, efforts, uh, good faith efforts to make the workplace safe will go a long way in defending against those cases. Thanks, Jeff. I think those are some valuable takeaways for employers, especially as we see how quickly changing these regulations and guidance are. It's it's absolutely imperative that they keep up with it on the day-to-day. But Emily, Jeff, thank you so much for all of your input. This has been fascinating and very, very illuminating in terms of these hot topics. I hope that everyone will join us on our next podcast as we go through additional chapters of the book and hear from other great business law practitioners and hear their perspectives on recent trends in their areas. Thank you all and have a good one. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.